Radio CIC is a production of Contrary Investors Cafe and is produced for educational purposes only. Opinions of guests do not necessarily reflect those of Radio CIC, Contrary Investors Cafe, its staff, affiliates, or advertisers. Radio CIC does not specifically recommend any investments, nor does it intend for information imparted by guests to be investment recommendations. As always, consult a qualified financial advisor before making any financial decisions. Welcome to Radio CIC. I'm your host, Takoa Da Silva. Here with us today is Trace Mayer, entrepreneur, investor, and publisher of RunToGold.com. Trace, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you're welcome, Takoa. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you here. You know, Trace, I've been reading RunToGold.com, your articles here. I've been monitoring the site now for a number of years. You produce some absolutely amazing content. So uh, I'm really excited here to get the opportunity to speak with you and uh, hear more about your story. Um, so for our listeners that are just tuning into this interview now, pull up the site, RunToGold.com, and scroll through during the interview to take a look at Trace's work. Trace, what I want to do is is um, kind of go back in time a little bit, and I, I, I want to learn a little bit more about your story, your background, uh, what made you decide to put this website together, and so forth. Well, to get directly to the website, mainly I was uh, I'd explain finance and economics to friends or family and uh, I don't know if it was because the concepts were so complex and they wanted to learn more or they just wanted me to shut up, but uh, I had several suggestions. Well, you should put a website up. And being technically inclined, I was like, you know, that's a good idea. I bet I could talk and explain these uh, points and concepts and things to a lot more people than I could do in person. And uh, it'd be a little bit of fun. So that's how I decided to put Run to Gold up. And uh, it's kind of grown from there. You know, it's been quite a fun hobby for me, and that's mainly what it has been. It's been a hobby, and it's kind of my art. You know, I guess some people like to paint, and other people like to sculpt. Uh, for me, I like to craft these articles and like explain finance and economics and money, and because uh, I I just have a passion about it, and I, I really enjoy it. And so that's uh, a little bit about how and why the website got started. Trace, has running this website had a material impact on on your personal experiences, your life, and also along with that, your future at this point? Uh, yeah. W- one thing, you know, I've always been, uh, uh, my, my background, uh, trained in accounting, trained in law. Uh, so, I mean, it's not like I, I haven't put in effort in analytical work and things, but it's different when you write for the public. It's different when you, you craft an article and you put it out there. And after putting out hundreds of articles uh, where, you know, I've put a lot of work and a lot of thought into them. And as you said, you know, there's great content there. And the market has recognized that. And they've come and they've begun to read. Well, one, one thing is that I don't always agree with everybody. And so being able to uh, craft to think, to develop these articles and put them out there and then have those ideas clash with the ideas of other people, that's where I've really been blessed because I have to, you know, I have to refine my ideas. I have to refine my arguments. I have to get better and more persuasive uh, in how I present things in order to have it be more competitive in the marketplace. And so I've really been uh, blessed by having created these hundreds of articles. You know, I... Uh, a few about a week ago, I was going back and looking through a lot of the the older articles that I had written when I first started, 
and just to see the the growth in my writing ability and in my ability to present concepts and the complexity of the posts and uh, things like that, uh, I've noticed that I've had quite an evolution in my own ability to uh, write and, and to present the ideas. And so, I mean, I've never been illiterate, but writing has never been my strong suit. I'm much more a math guy. Uh, you know, I when I was in high school, I had to I had to solve a problem, and and for an entrepreneurial venture I was doing, and I actually derived a form of calculus to do it uh, when, when I was like in my first years of high school. And I didn't know that later until I was in college, but I've always been mathematically inclined, and not necessarily as uh, as good with the pen, and so. That's another way that, that it's really impacted my life materially is that I've gotten a lot sharper with the pen. And uh, I, I kind of enjoy that because at the end of the day, ideas can only be overcome by other ideas. And it's fun to be out there uh, battling with these ideas in the marketplace. And, you know, the strongest ideas are going to win. And, and that's a lot of fun to be able to be one of the, the participants in the gladiatorial pen as opposed to uh, just a spectator. Although being a spectator is fun, too. You know, Trace, your concepts are extremely timely. In a previous conversation, you also mentioned that you have a connection with howtovanish.com, uh, and I've, I've seen a number of the articles, and I've read a number of them on there as well. And uh, Looking at your work, you have some major concepts that are in just about all of your writing. Uh, the first one is gold. Uh, the second one is privacy, freedom, and protection for your wealth. The third, I would say, general concept that I pick up out of it is big interest. You, you know, you have your central banking uh, financial system, and you have the big companies that uh, you know all seek to uh, expand their power. Uh, so, uh, Trace, can you explain um, how you came to inherit your views with gold? Uh, and then expand out into those other two areas. If I n- nailed those three general topics, yeah, I would say I would say that those uh, hit on some big themes in my life. Uh, I've always been, uh, I would say, a good person. You know, if there are two ways to get something from somebody, if I want your tie, for example, we can engage in a voluntary consensual agreement. Uh, I can buy it from you. I could dig a ditch for you, and you could give it to me, or it could be involuntary. Uh, I could, you know, force you to give it to me. I could use a gun, for example. Uh, I've always tried to to follow the tenant to never use violence against innocent people or their legitimately acquired property, and that's a that's an essential part of freedom, of liberty, of people being able to live the life the way they want to live it without other people getting involved, telling them what to do, telling them how to eat. Uh, checking their testicles before they get on an airplane, uh, doing all these types of things that really intrude on your ability to design your lifestyle the way you want to. And so in order to, in order to further that cause of freedom or of liberty, of, of basically allowing the individual, the, 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 each of us to make the choices that we want to make, as long as we don't hurt other people or uh, or take their legitimately acquired property in an unconsensual way, as long as it, it follows those two basic tenets, you know, I think people should be able to do what they want to do and to be able to pursue happiness, as the, as the preamble says uh, in the Declaration. So 
the, in order to do that, we have to understand money uh, because gold and silver, they're not just barbaric commodities, but they're essential checks and balances in the political machinery. Uh, they constitute currency, what we use for our ordinary daily currency. It constitutes, in effect, uh, one half of every transaction. And so when we have a small group of people who want to set both the supply and price of that good, uh, it leads to the ability to confiscate through inflation, which is a form of taxation without representation. It's a way to steal the fruits of people's labors uh, surreptitiously. And so that's one reason I'm so opposed to central banking and fractional reserve banking and uh, using the fiat currency as a, as, a, as a means of exchange, as legal tender, because it erodes and it attacks the freedom of individual people. And uh, by corollary, it engages in a process of uh, what I call vote inflation. Uh, the big corporations, of course, they've got plenty of lobbyists. And what does Eric Schmidt say? Well, the lobbyists write the laws. And so you know, whether we want it or not, they sell us goods that we don't want, and they steal our money uh, in order to fund the, the companies and the corporations that do this. You know, uh, if the market really wanted uh, TSA, for example, then it would have uh, provided for TSA. I mean, we had airplanes for decades, and we did just fine without TSA. But now they are able to fund this gigantic bureaucracy with uh in effect, confiscated money, and they do it through a form of taxation without representation, and that strikes at the very heart of individual freedom and liberty, because we have to have private property, and we have to have freedom of association in order to uh, live the lives that we want to live, and do the things that we want to do, and just pursue uh, happiness, however we may find it in our own individual life. And another uh, corollary to that is, you know, we should be able to do things without being watched and without being monitored and without every step and transaction being tracked and taxed. And so that's uh, where How to Vanish comes in. Uh, that's another site that I, that I co-author with a buddy of mine. We went to law school together. And uh, so we, we help people take control of their personal privacy so that they can do the things that they want to do uh, without having people always looking over their shoulder and and saying, oh, you can do this or you can't do that, and blah, 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 because uh, there's, you know, there are a lot of threats, especially in the digital age, to uh, what we do. You know, if, if you know that it's going to be uh, kept in a permanent record somewhere, like everything you do, well, you might do things differently. You might not write about freedom and liberty on a website, for example, because I might come back to haunt you. Uh, because, you know, telling the truth in an empire of lies, it can be a dangerous thing. Uh, but, you know, I think we just need to, to do what we, we want to do and uh, do it peacefully, you know, but at the same time, we don't need to feed this machine. And where possible, we need to starve it to death. We, you know, don't buy their goods, don't buy their services, don't use their currency, uh, opt out, basically, of their system. And that's uh, that'll help us as we seek to pursue happiness a lot more because when you look at the Western nations, particularly America, why are so many people using antidepressants? You know, why is everybody so uh, fed up with their life? Why, why do they 
uh, not like working at the jobs that they're working in? Well, a lot of it has to do with the fact that they're slaves. They're treated as livestock. They're you know, reared in indoctrination pens, public schools, buying a good that they don't necessarily want to pay for, uh, having that money confiscated from them. Then they work in a job that they don't necessarily want to work in. They're, the fruits of their labors are confiscated through inflation. Yeah, I can understand why a lot of people might be depressed or might not uh, be too happy with the current system. Uh, but there, there are ways that we can change this and ways that we can take control of our own situation. And, and in doing so, we can protect our privacy. So that's uh, you know, a little bit of, to expound on kind of the why behind those three major uh, points that you kind of teased out of the writings. Trace, are there any historical examples to which you draw a lot of similarity here that the that the U.S. Empire is currently in? Maybe it's maybe it's the Romans or another civilization. Do you see the centralized power here being part of a um, a cycle or part of a uh, ever upward sloping curve? Well, I I think it's definitely part of a cycle. Um, we we had. You know, in the Neolithic age, we, we came out of that into the industrial age. When I say we, humanity, uh, we developed agriculture, and that led to the rise of elites. Uh, and the elites weren't necessarily bad. They were, they were families that were particularly skillful as merchants or whatnot. Uh, anyways, they, they arose into governments, and eventually these governments have become corrupted. Uh, they used to provide a, a good service to humanity, but now they, they don't necessarily provide a very much useful service. Um, but we moved from the, the agricultural age into the industrial age, and that took, you know, about 500 years. And it started back in about the 1500s, you know, we made the transition by about the, the, by the end of the 20, 20th century. And, you know, a lot of people, they like to com compare the American empire to the Roman empire. And I think that, you know, there, there are a lot of legitimacies in that comparison, uh, particularly with, you know, slaves and providing for bread and circuses and things of that nature. Uh, but when, one area where it just really kind of misses uh, in, in being able to accurately compare is that we now have the Internet. And the Internet is this technological invention uh, and it's bigger than than irrigation, you know, that led to the agricultural age. It's bigger than the Gutenberg press, which led to the industrial age. And I don't think we fully understand how it's going to shift and shape uh, the world. You know, we used to not ha government didn't play a very large role in most of humanity's existence, and it's really only been in the rise of the industrial age, that this nation state as an institution has actually played much of a role. But now, just like the, the church played a huge role back in the, the 14 and 1500s, I mean, they used to burn people for treason. I mean, heresy, sorry, uh, heresies against the church, treasons against the government. But what happened with the Gutenberg press is the ideas began to spread. Martin Luther nailed up the 95 uh, thesis. You had uh, William Tyndall. You had this ability to share and communicate ideas. And remember, ideas, they're, they can only be overcome by other ideas. They echo through the corridors of time. They know no boundaries. They can spread all over the world. Uh, they're, they're bulletproof. They're, 
Uh, so it's the, these ideas, they began to spread. And at the same time, you, you had different economics when it came to violence. Uh, your wealth generating assets in the industrial age, they were very much tied to geography. You might have a factory or a mine. And so in order to acquire protection services, you need you needed the ability to to project and exert violence uh, on a very kind of large scale. And so that led to the rise of the nation state because governments are force and forces violence and uh, the the nation states that were able to project and acquire the mean acquire the means and the ability to project force they grew and became the largest and of course the the fairly free market system in the U.S. that's what led to the rise and the centralization of this power. However, in the information age, we've got this new technology. We've got the ability to spread ideas faster and more efficiently than ever before, and uh, it changes the economics of this violence. Uh, the wealth-generating assets, they're now, for the most part, moving into the cloud. And so with the click of a button, you can, you can move the server from Hong Kong to Iceland or from Iceland to Singapore. Uh, this wasn't possible when you had wealth-generating assets like a factory or a mine. Uh, organized labor, governments could tax and regulate. You could extort those holders of capital very easily. In the information age, it's much more difficult because the barrier to exit is so much higher. And uh, this doesn't go just for that. You also have other things like communication. You can encrypt. It's free and open source, but to decrypt the message, in other words, to apply force uh, to acquire the information in the message against the will of the sender, uh, it requires lots of computer processing time and lots of resources, lots of money. So the, the cost of protection is really low. The return on investment from extortion is extremely low or going negative. And so these things, uh, what this portends is this portends an age where violence will not be as profitable as it was in the industrial age. It was extremely profitable in the, in the industrial age. So that's why we had a lot of violence. But we're transitioning now into the information age. And it took 500 years to complete the transition from the agricultural to the industrial age. But this time, we're going to transition from the industrial to the information age in maybe 40, 50 years. And we're already 15 years into it. And the further we get into it, the faster that transition happens. Uh, five years ago, there, Facebook is six years old. YouTube, you know, it didn't hardly exist five years ago. Now it swings elections. Now it... Uh, it, it, you know, we, we see social uh, media and things like this. They, we, we have differing uh, things that just can sweep the globe in a matter of hours. Whether it's don't touch my junk uh, at the San Diego airport or don't tase me, bro, or uh, I voted, you know, we've got to find, we got to pass the bill to find out what's in it. It's holding politicians a lot more accountable. And so, these changes in the economics of violence that are being brought about by the information age, uh, they're very exciting because they pretend a, a much more stable, peaceful, prosperous uh, world. Now, managing your own personal affairs as we transition into that new world is, I think, going to be uh, particularly difficult. And this is because dying monopolies usually don't go out very 
very peacefully. And, you know, just look at the increased uh, despair that you're seeing from governments worldwide. You know, they're cracking down on this war on terror, which is really just a war on the individual. They want to maintain the ability to uh, milk their cows and turn them into hamburger. But uh, in the information age, cows, in effect, are able to grow wings and fly away very easily. So this is very exciting uh, to see this transition that's happening uh, in the in kind of the overall big picture. So, Trace, if I understand that correctly, you have a technology company, let's say, headquartered in Zimbabwe, <laughs> uh, just as an example. So the country comes in and says, we'd like to raise our corporate intact, our income tax on your company from 10% to uh, 40%. And so the company says, okay, give us a six-month you know, moratorium. The government says, okay, that's fine. And then within six months, they pack up all their shop, they move into the cloud, the technological cloud, as you mentioned, and move their entire operations to Sweden. Afterwards, Zimbabwe, the the government is then has then lost that ten percent uh, income tax revenue stream. Is that the kind of uh, 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 negative return that you're talking about in this information age? Yeah, yeah. I mean that's one example. Uh, Bloomberg they recently had an article about Google. Google pays a two point four percent effective tax rate. I mean that's kind of crazy when you think about it. Uh, average corporation, you know, pays a whole lot more than that. Uh, but but it's not even necessarily that the the Zimbabwe tech company is going to go and talk to uh, the government about it. They're just going to vanish. Uh, they're gonna, you know, they're just gonna wrap themselves in their invisibility cloak and teleport uh, to to Hong Kong or to Singapore or to Sweden. Um, I mean. You you look everybody oh where did our top line go you know everybody's whining about the the disappearance in the top line the the lack of ability to get sales and stuff like that well it's because uh, you know <laughs> the the wealth generators they're just vanishing um, and there's there's a lot more economic activity going on than I think shows up in the the actual official numbers um, which is kind of exciting. Uh, but at the same time, uh, how much does it cost Zimbabwe to go and try to chase those people down and bring them back uh, from Sweden? You know, and even if, and even if they, and even if they did bring them back, how could they force them uh, to actually generate any wealth? You know, it's kind of like from Atlas Shrugged. You go get John Galt, you bring him back, and you're like, "Well, fix the machine." And John Galt says, "Tell me what to do." Yeah. <laughs> I mean, when you when you got these people that that have no marketable skills, that have no ability to generate wealth, and the only way they survive is by exerting violence and force on other people and stealing their property. I mean, because that's what they are, even though they're strutting around in their costumes, uh, they they aren't actually able to do anything on their own uh, that's productive. That's why they go and work for the institutions or organizations that they work for. Uh, in governments, um, but the, the, so so they can't actually generate that return on investment. And now, more than ever before, the ability for the holder of capital to just vanish from jurisdictions where he's not able to enjoy the fruits of his labor—that's um, increasingly uh, available. So we're seeing that the jurisdictions that treat capital well both human and economic capital, 
uh, they attract more of it. And the, the areas and jurisdictions that don't treat it well, uh, that's where people vanish from. So it's, a, it's very exciting to see these changes happening. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, we see in the headlines, the Illinois, you know, the DMV got evicted for not paying rent. Uh, well, where are the people who are generating wealth in Illinois? Well, they've probably vanished to Florida or some other jurisdiction where they're treated a little bit better. So this this is exciting. And, and you know, people, they still have the ability to vote with their feet and to vote with their dollars and their, their money. And uh, that's what they're doing increasingly. You know, Trace, I hadn't seen any other articles on the Internet that uh, took the LeBron James story uh, and positioned it in the way that you had in terms of Florida offering uh, the the preferable tax treatment of no income tax. How much of, of, of his decision was due in part to that? Because I know that he's a smart kid. It's funny to say kid. The guy is like eight feet tall. Right. <laughs> he's, a, he's a smart guy. I mean, I believe he's consulted with Warren Buffett in the past on, on some of his uh, negotiating uh, decisions. He knows what he's doing. In your opinion, did that play a a big role in uh, in that decision. Well, of course, we'll, we'll never know because uh, th- that's in Le- in LeBron James's own heart. But when when you do the numbers, like we kind of showed in that article, it comes out to millions and millions of dollars. The difference between uh, you know Ohio or New Jersey and Florida, and uh, that's an example. You know, do they oh, they want to keep this particularly productive cow. Uh, but he grew wings and flew down to Florida. <laughs> and uh, and how, you know, when, when, when you're a holder of capital, uh, what benefit is there uh, from staying in Ohio or New Jersey or California or the United States uh, as opposed to the cost? You know, it, it becomes just a simple economic calculation uh, where, where you're calculating the, the cost-benefit analysis. And I think in LeBron James's uh, calcu- calculus of that, it just made a whole lot more sense to go to Florida, just like Tiger Woods went to Florida, and just like uh, Google goes to the Netherlands, you know, to uh, help with their 2.4% effective tax rate. So, I mean, I don't know exactly how much of a role it played, but I would say that it was probably the defi- the, the, the defining uh, factor uh, for him. And that, that's interesting. At the end of that article, we actually have a product, uh, Bill and I do, where we help people uh, choose their tax domicile uh, because there's, you know, there's a couple legal tests that go into determining where your tax domicile is and where you land. And most people, they, they don't really uh, take much thought about that. Uh, but if you're earning over $50,000 a year uh, and it's fairly location-independent income, just with a few little tweaks to your situation, you can, in most cases, completely eliminate that three to five thousand dollars a year of tax that you're paying. And so, you know, why not do it? <laughs> and it's increasingly easy to do in the in the information age. So, uh, I think LeBron James did it, and I think that there are a lot more ordinary people who didn't have this ability to do it uh, before, but now because of the internet, they they do have this ability. And I think they're taking advantage of it. You look at New Jersey, for example. They raised their state income tax, and $70 billion of net worth moved out of the state. So those cows just grew wings and flew away. And now New Jersey doesn't get the Malcolm. Uh, 
And what would New Jersey's return on investment be from going and trying to get the cows and bring them back so they could milk them? It would be hugely negative. Uh, so, you know, this is a this is another example of how decentralization is actually uh, at work in the information age. Trace, you know, I've seen information out there that suggests that when a government reduces its tax rate, it actually attracts more business, which leads to higher higher tax rolls uh, coming in. And uh, I want to um, go back to a concept that we talked about just a few minutes ago about a, a country trying to keep trapped. I guess we could say the cows. We've seen a, uh, a few countries out there in the world that restrict their citizens from moving about. They can't leave the country. And I'd like to ask what your opinion is there in terms of the likelihood of, of countries shutting down the Internet, shutting down this process of, of integration into the information age and choosing to take a step back into the industrial and agrarian ages just to uh, keep control of the cows. Yeah, well, they'll definitely try to do it. I mean, North Korea is stifled in 1940s and 50s technology. Uh, Myanmar, China, uh, the United States, you know, uh, how much technology is classified, for example? I mean, we're probably living way beyond, uh, way behind where we probably could be if we weren't uh, feeding these parasitical uh, extortioners. Uh, but, you know, I think that the, the long history of humanity's journey from the swamp to the stars, uh, it points to one thing, and that's that man will be what he was born to be, free and independent, to quote John F. Kennedy. And I don't think that there's much that governments can do worldwide to stop this general mega trend. Uh, sure, they can uh, clamp down on their own cows and try to increasingly uh, extort them, uh, what do you think the Patriot Act is? You know, a third of it is uh, relates to financial institutions. You could call it the Cash Flow Control Act. It's to keep capital in the dollar. Well, what about all these new reporting of foreign bank accounts and things like, and financial accounts and things like that? All of this is designed to keep track of the cows wherever they fly around the world. Uh, but it's becoming increasingly apparent that the cost-benefit analysis from being a U.S. citizen, for example, uh, is just not where it used to be. And so uh, the time it takes to process your certificate of loss of naturalization, that's when you renounce U.S. citizenship, uh, the time is jumped by like three or six months uh, because so many people are leaving the United States in the sense that they're renouncing their U.S. citizenship. And so I think that we're going to see an increase in the, uh, you could say, commercialization of sovereignty. I mean, I, I believe sovereignty's always uh, been in the individual, but I think we're going to continue to see uh, this decentralization, whether that's through uh, citizenship by investment programs like you have with Dominica or the St. Kitts or Montenegro just announced a new one. Uh, in August, and Bulgaria, for example. I mean, you can invest in Bulgaria, and you can have an EU passport in five years. You can have permanent residency pretty much immediately. And uh, so, you know, there, there are going to be those that try to clamp down on the cows, and that just opens up the market opportunity to say, hey, we got greener grass over here. Come over here. We won't milk you. 
uh, just give us a little bit of money and you can graze in our pasture and we give you tons of room and lots of green grass to eat. Uh, and eventually, uh, through this process, I think we're going to see either the complete collapse of the nation state as an institution or it's going to be drastically, drastically reduced in its size and scope. Uh, and mainly because they're bankrupt and they can't generate a profitable return on investment. So they're going to starve to death and they're going to eat, eat you know, it's kind of like a snake eating its own tail. The more, the more they try to clamp down on the cows, the more enticing it is and the more cows they incentivize to leave. And the more of a market they create for other people to welcome the cows and to, to dangle before them uh, reasons why they should leave and make it cheaper to do so. So uh, I think it's uh, kind of, you know, that they're just hastening their own collapse through passing things like the Patriot Act and uh, trying to clamp down on UBS, etc. cetera. Uh, so, yeah, I don't <laughs> I think it's kind of kind of funny to watch the desperation in the politicians uh, actions. For our listeners, uh, Trace, you've published a book uh, called The Great Credit Contraction, uh, and that can be found on rundagold.com. And along with it, you published one of the most fascinating charts that I've seen out there on the internet that deals with gold and allocation to it. And I want to talk about that. I want to get your big picture view here on uh, uh, total world assets moving into gold and what that uh, could portend here for the other major asset categories like real estate, uh, U.S. stock market, bonds, and so forth. Uh, yeah, well, the, the liquidity pyramid, you can find it right on the homepage run to gold there's approximately two thousand trillion dollars of uh, worldwide asset values uh, actually a lot less now than <laughs> because a lot of it's evaporated what's happening capital is moving down that liquidity pyramid out of things like mortgage-backed securities or auction rate securities or derivatives moving into safer more liquid assets like the Dow or treasuries or gold and silver and you know, a lot of it's moving to to treasuries of you know whether it's Germany German bonds or U.S. bonds or Australian bonds, uh, but eventually it's going to move from that into the monetary metals. And what's so kind of exciting about this transition is that the fiat currencies, whether it's the yen or the dollar or the euro, they are they represent the common stock. Uh, of those institutions or organizations. They're kind of like bearer bonds. Um, and so because gold has broken out against all major currencies over the last 10 years, what that portends is the decline of their business model. You know, it's, it's not as profitable and lucrative to be engaged in the violence business as it used to be. At least that's what gold is saying. Uh, when you price the common stock of these organizations that are engaged in the violence business, uh, like the United States or Europe or uh, Germany or uh, other nations. So as capital continues to move into that safer and more liquid assets, it kind of hastens uh, the rate at which this liquidity pyramid continues to evaporate. And then the more people who want to move more of their capital down. So kind of the faster it goes, the faster it goes. And so that's generally what's happening. And right now, you know, gold and silver, they're not used very much in ordinary daily transactions as a currency. Uh, most people don't even hold any. And so we're just in the very beginning stages of this giant transition to a world where 
the state, the nation state, is drastically reduced in size and scope. And as a result, people don't use uh, their common stock anymore. They don't want to hold it because it becomes increasingly worthless because the return on investment from that enterprise uh, is negative and going lower just because that's the general market trend. I mean, who wants to hold newspaper stocks right now? You know, anybody who's held a stock in, in newspaper companies over the last five years have just been decimated. And the reason is because in the industrial in the industrial age, newspapers were very profitable as a business model. But in the information age, there's been a lot of creative destruction. And the newspapers, you know, there's a lot of inertia in organizations and change isn't mandatory. You can go extinct. And a lot of newspapers have chosen to go extinct instead of change. And we're seeing the same thing with governments. Uh, they're, they're choosing to uh, not change. And as a result, they're probably either going to go extinct or uh, starve themselves to death or at least starve themselves enough that they're going to have to eventually you know, change uh, before they completely die. So I think that's kind of exciting, too. Um, it's becoming increasingly profitable to choose freedom uh, as opposed to uh, tyranny. And that's essentially what the, the fight between fiat currency and gold and silver and other commodity-based currencies is. It's the fight between tyranny and freedom. Uh, and which one do you vote uh, with your, your, the fruits of your labor? Trace, what has your work shown in terms of uh, gold being repriced as a total percentage of worldwide assets? I know when we look back towards um, late 70s, early 80s, it constituted a much higher percentage than it does today. What do you think we would need to see here for that uh, previous uh, peak to be met? And, and, and in your opinion, could we see something uh, higher afterwards? Uh, yeah, I definitely uh, – we have to see a higher gold price. Um, the market's going to force it, and where where it goes, actually, you know, we could see four to eleven thousand. That might prolong the current system a, a few years. Uh, we might need to see fifty thousand U.S. an ounce. Uh, you know, if the if the bull kind of gets a little out of control, the major issue here is that central banks carry gold on gold gold in the vault and gold out on loan is the same line item. In effect, they're reporting cash and accounts receivable is the same thing. What they've done is they've naked short sold uh, gold. And they've done this not necessarily, you know, when, when, when you see price suppression, this is very weird because it's done not by users but by owners. And it's not done for the obvious reasons. You know, it's not like pork bellies or potash where if you use those, you would want to keep the price low because that's the cost of your input. In this case, the reason they want to keep gold and silver low is because they pose a mortal threat to their fiat paper uh, franchises, their monopolies. So they want to keep the gold price down. So they've been leasing the physical metal into the market to meet the deficit between mine production and demand. And they've been doing this for you know about the last 100 years total. Uh, but now the market's saying, you know what? put the bar on my truck and I'm going to drive it away. And so the central banks, they have only maybe a half to a third of the gold they claim to have. And increasingly, the gold is getting into private hands. Last year, there's more gold in private hands than public hands. And we know the rule. He who has the gold makes the rules. 
And so it's very exciting to see the gold and the silver just flying off the shelves uh, into private hands. Uh, people are exchanging their little colored coupons that are just figments of their imagination. They're exchanging them for something real and tangible. And right now they're doing it only as a form of insurance. Uh, but, you know, eventually I think we're going to, to see, uh, see holding of gold and silver as doing it much more for currency reasons and using it in ordinary daily transactions. And that's where, uh, where it, you know, ha if, if we had to hold, if we use gold as our cash balance, I mean, you take just the, the five major oil companies and you take just their current assets, you know, BP, ExxonMobil, Chevron, you take one-third of 1% 1 of their current assets and they could buy every single gold ounce that's available for delivery on the COMEX. Uh, annual worldwide production of platinum is about 7 million ounces a year. That's about 7 to $10 billion at current prices. There's $13.5 trillion of bank accounts insured by the FDIC. You know, what, what if everybody was holding their bank accounts, not in dollars or euros, but in gold and silver and platinum and palladium? And, and that's what we're going to see happen in the information age because the cost is a lot lower. The ability to extort and steal your capital is a lot harder. Uh, and so people, to reduce their costs and to reduce their risk, they're going to move their cash balances into the, the monetary metals. Uh, for example, if you had a million dollars of capital in 2001, your store of capital expense holding in gold would be about $500 a month for vaulting and insurance. You hold that in treasury bills, it's about $1,500 a month. So you, you pay 300 times as much for that, that line item expense of store of capital expense, like where do I store my excess cash? And that's, uh, that's very expensive. You know, why are people paying it? And for the most part, it's hidden. It's not like it's right there on the income statement uh, in the expense section. Like, you paid this much in store of capital expense, you know, to, to hold your money in dollars or euros. Uh, we, we don't really see it that way. But if we did, I think a lot of people would say, you know what? I don't want to pay that extra $1,000 a month uh, by using the dollar instead of using gold. And they would move, you know, their capital into gold because it would be cheaper and more effective and less risky. Um, so we could see some really big changes, uh, especially in dollar terms. Uh, and right now, uh, I mean, 10 years ago, you couldn't say gold in polite company. And now you have the president of the World Bank writing an op-ed in the Financial Times about it. And so there's going to be a change in attitude. And the holders of capital and managers of money, they're going to force uh, – through market forces, they're going to force much more accountability. And gold, I think, and silver and the other monetary metals are going to play a prime role in that. And eventually, we're going to be seeing balance sheets denominated not in dollars or euros, but in gold. Like, I already do it from a managerial accounting standpoint. Uh, I'm, I keep, I use gold as the numeraire to, to find out, you know, whether my net worth is increased in gold ounces or not. And I think we're going to see that practice spread, uh, especially to more sophisticated money managers like John Paulson's already doing it. He's got a hedge fund in gold. Um, 
like denominated in gold, uh, we're going to see that increasingly spread that that practice because you can't reliably measure uh, wealth with the dollar or the euro or the yen, but you can with gold. So that's the role it's always played, and so it, that's a that's another thing you know that's that's kind of driving this. Now, Trace, uh, how can our listeners find your work, support it? How can they get a copy of that the uh, the Great Credit Contraction book? Uh, yeah, just come to runtogold.com. Uh, as I said, it's mainly kind of a hobby. So, uh, you know, just read the articles. If you like it and want to support uh, the site, buy the book. Uh, the book will actually be helpful for you because the site's not free. I mean, got to pay for hosting and other stuff like that. And if they want, like, the, the latest updates and things like that, then they can uh, subscribe for the email updates, and those are uh, free also. So I'd really recommend that because I've gone and found you know, some of my best articles and I put them in there so that you get some of those best articles automatically emailed to you. And they're fairly evergreen. You know, they're the, they're not the articles on the current price, like where's it's going to go. But they're much more, you know, they tease out the monetary science and the economics and then, you know, hang around and look at the site because occasionally I'll, I'll, you know, say what's a good, good value or what's not. And if people follow that advice, then they usually make a lot of money, too. Uh, for example, I was on BNN, and, and I said, back in 2009, I said, you know, gold would go to 1,300 an ounce in uh, 2010, second quarter, and it hit 1,256. Went from about 1,050 to 1,256. So if people had followed that advice, traded some, uh, tra- traded some of the gold, that they could have made quite a bit of money on that, quite a bit of profit. So... Uh, yeah, there's there's quite a bit of advantage to going and kind of hanging around Run to Gold. You'll learn a lot about kind of the mega trend, but also get some. Occasionally, you'll get applicable uh, action that you can do. Trace, what's your view on gold for 2011? I think it's going to go higher. Uh, January, February, probably peak. You know, maybe peak in March. Then we'll have a correction uh, probably through the summer, and then uh, I think it'll move. It'll start moving up again in September, October, November, and very well could see fifteen hundred ounce, you know, maybe sixteen hundred ounce, uh, assuming things don't get really crazy. <laughs> if it gets really crazy and and the insurance begins performing, and actually it has to a little degree, uh, you know, I, I think it could get out of hand and you know maybe two thousand ounce or something. I don't think we're gonna see. A general systemic collapse like hyperinflation or anything. I don't think we'll see that for a long time. They got a lot of, there's a lot of inertia with the current system. It took 500 years to build. You know, it's not going to go down in a year or two. Uh, but it could, which is why you'd want to have gold. Uh, but I think the probability of that's very low. So, you know, just kind of my, my general advice would be uh, find cash flowing businesses or free up your own. Uh, cash flow, and with that excess cash flow, purchase the metal on a monthly basis. Um, you know, just keep acquiring it because I think it's tremendously undervalued. And there's, you know, but it, you know, it's kind of a little expensive relative to other asset classes when you look in the short term. But if you look over that five, ten, fifteen year period, I think it's tremendously undervalued. And there's not really any better place, I think, in terms of safety and liquidity to be given all the uncertainty and the political unrest and risk that we're going to be facing. So I'd say, you know, just keep stockpiling it away. And then 
when it gets expensive, that's when you can trade it for real estate or for uh, stocks, you know. But for now, I think get get high cash flowing stuff, assets, and then just start piling that into the metals every month, looking for additional deals like that to do. All right, well, Trace, thank you so much for sharing your comments. It's an absolute pleasure to speak with you. For our listeners, again, visit rundagold.com to follow Trace's work. Um, Trace, I'll, I'll uh, see you again next time. Okay, thanks. <laughs>